Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. I will be preaching a standalone sermon this morning on the topic of money. And really, it's, it's a sermon about generosity, but either way, you're probably thinking about leaving, right? Um, everyone's watching. Well, there are, some, there are some issues for which the Bible is relatively silent, and, and Christians tend to be pretty loud. And there are other issues for which the Bible is really pretty loud, and Christians are generally silent. And, and this topic today is one of the latter. Um, the Bible has a lot to say about money, and yet we rarely talk about it. So let's talk about it. But before we get into our text this morning, I'd like for us to talk about dragons. Nerd alert. In literature, dragons are often personified as antagonists, right, as the bad guys. We associate many of them with violence, mistrust, and greed. So who, who is familiar with the name Smog? Nice. Uh, Smog is a dragon in Tolkien's novel, The Hobbit. For nearly 200 years, Smog lived in Lonely Mountain, which is aptly named, hoarding piles and piles of gold and gemstones. He was outrageously wealthy, and yet um, he did nothing with his wealth. His wealth served no purpose. Years and years of literally sleeping upon his fortune had embedded uh, precious metals in his scales. It formed an impenetrable external shell. Smog is described by Tolkien as a most specially greedy, strong, and wicked worm. In fact, the name smog is taken from an old Germanic word, uh, smugen, meaning to squeeze through a hole, and that conjures the worm imagery. Um, it, it also alludes to Jesus' warning to the rich that it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But here's the question. When you picture an outrageously rich person sleeping upon a bed of gold and hoarding every penny, what comes to your mind? What's your reaction to that image? In general, I think, I think most of us have competing thoughts. I have competing thoughts. On the one hand, I think, oh, that'd be pretty cool to, to sleep on a bed of gold. And on the other hand, I think, that's disgusting. In other words, we all want more money, but we all hate greed. And when it's this obvious, we can see greed for what it is. But really, what, what is greed? Where do we draw the line between humble wealth and true greed? Because you can certainly be a greedy billionaire, right? But you can also be a greedy toddler. And most of us are, are, are a greedy something in between. I'm a greedy grown man with a mortgage, a retirement portfolio, a closet full of clothes I don't wear, a car with leather seats, and two bags of gummy bears in my pantry. And obviously, not all of those things are bad in and of themselves, but, but even so, if I may be so bold, what kind of greedy are you? Let's give some context to 2 Corinthians 8. 
as the name suggests, the book of 2 Corinthians was written to Christians in Corinth, a city in Greece. The city of Corinth was known for its commercial enterprise, wealth, and luxury. Okay, Macedonia, on the other hand, was desperately poor. The phrase extreme poverty in verse 2 can be translated as rock-bottom poverty. Even though the region was prosperous historically, they had fallen on hard times financially. And on top of that, the churches were facing persecution for their faith. So Corinth was rich. Macedonia was poor. But that's not all. Over the course of several centuries, the Greeks and the Macedonians had become bitter political rivals. The two regions had a long history of conflict and competition. So it's absolutely strategic that Paul, the author of 2 Corinthians, would encourage the wealthy Greeks to give generously by telling them about the generosity of the poor Macedonians. Let's read verses 1 through 6. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So as Paul traveled throughout the ancient world planting churches, starting new churches, he was taking a collection on behalf of Christians in Jerusalem who were facing double taxation and a deadly famine. Okay, so churches throughout the world were taking part in the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. Even churches like Macedonia, who were likewise poor. And get this, verse, verse 4 tells us the Macedonians were begging Paul. They were poor and they were begging. They were poor beggars. Begging not to receive, begging to give. Despite their severe test of affliction and extreme poverty, their joy, had over, their joy had overflowed in a wealth of generosity. And what was the nature of their generosity? Verse 3 tells us that they gave beyond their means. A better translation might be beyond their ability. In other words, they, they gave miraculously. Their generosity was otherworldly. It was not natural. It was supernatural. So what in the world could persuade a group of people to do that? What in the world could compel a poverty-stricken person to beg for the favor of giving money away? What in the world could produce that degree of self-sacrificing generosity? Answer, the self-sacrificing generosity of the Macedonian churches was the product of God's grace, God's free and unmerited blessing. And grace is a clear theme within this passage because 
Biblical generosity is grace-motivated grace. Biblical generosity is God's grace to us, overflowing in us, extending God's grace to others. Biblical generosity is God's grace to us, overflowing in us, extending God's grace to others. The Macedonian churches were given God's grace for acts of grace, which the poor Christians in Jerusalem were to receive as God's grace. See, so the, so the Macedonians were rolling themselves into God's process for distributing grace to his people. What an honor. Grace-motivated acts of grace. God initiates his grace, we receive his grace, we steward his grace, and we distribute his grace. In fact, I want to challenge us to begin thinking about money as grace. But not just money. Think of your home and your spare bedroom and your car as the currency of grace. By that, I certainly don't mean to cheapen the concept of grace. But but according to the Bible, all that we have is given to us by God. He owns all of it and he shares it with us. How would your budget change if you looked at your bank account every month and asked this and thought this is God's grace to me and I'm called to steward this grace through acts of grace to others back to 2 Corinthians what is this passage calling us to take a look at verse 7 but as you excel in everything in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness. And in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. See that you excel in this act of grace also. It's fitting that that we're coming off of a sermon series on holiness, right? See that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul is calling the Corinthians to grow in this act of grace, which means Paul is calling us to grow in this act of grace. No matter how generous you are currently, you're being called to grow in generosity. If you're generous, grow in this act of grace. If you're greedy, grow in this act of grace. If you're giving 0%, 10%, 90%, grow in this act of grace. If you're a student, grow in this act of grace. If you're an engineer, grow in this act of grace. If your spouse manages the finances, grow in this act of grace. Verse 8 makes it clear, though, that Paul was not commanding a gift. He was not establishing a new set of rules. Some of you are sitting here waiting for me to state an actual biblical income percentage Forgiving, right? So let me say this. I do think we could make a case from the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 23 that 10% is the starting point for Christian giving to the local church. But I'm not interested in making that case today. I don't want to talk about tithing. I don't want to talk about net giving versus gross giving. 
my prayer for Sojourn this week is that God would make us a generous people. Not just, not just an obedient people, a generous people. Because 10% of 25,000 is arguably more generous than 10% of 250,000, right? Think about it. You're not generous because you pay your taxes. You're just being obedient to the governing authorities. And Christians are certainly expected to be obedient to the governing authorities, but there's a big difference here. Christians don't give out of duty or fear of punishment. We give out of joy in Jesus Christ. So Paul was not establishing a new set of rules. I have no interest in establishing a new set of rules. But generosity and sincere love were the product of great grace in Macedonia. So it was worth asking, was there great grace in Corinth too? It is worth asking, is there great grace in Houston? So why do we fail to give like the Macedonians gave in general? Why do we fail to give like they gave? What prevents us from growing in this act of grace? I've got five potential reasons. Um, Some may apply to you, some may not. But if if you're taking notes, write these down uh, because we will be working our way through them one by one. Potential reason number one, we don't understand how the gospel informs our finances. We don't understand how the gospel informs our finances. Potential reason number two, we are consumeristic with money, greedy for money, anxious about money, or all of the above. I'll read that again. We are consumeristic with money, greedy for money, anxious about money, or all of the above. Potential reason number three, we don't trust the church. Potential reason number four, we don't know how to budget, or to at least budget for generosity. And potential reason number five, we don't have the same sort of joy the Macedonians have. Okay, so let's linger for a bit on uh, this potential reason number one, that we don't understand how the gospel informs our finances. Let's read verse 9. Now, to be honest, you could forget everything I've said up until this point and everything I say after um, and still have everything you need. All you will ever need to know about generosity is right here in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So this is the Christian doctrine of the incarnation applied to our finances. The the, the doctrine of the incarnation is that beautiful, inconceivable truth that God has become a man. Jesus put on flesh so that we might no longer live according to the flesh. Jesus humbled himself into our world so that we could be exalted into his. Jesus became poor 
so that we might become rich beyond measure. Look at verse 5. The Macedonians gave themselves first to the Lord, and this is the Lord they gave themselves to. The Lord who became poor to make them rich. So likewise, we ought to give ourselves first to the Lord. And you need to know that that is going to cost you. Think about it. If we're saved by our own merit, by our own good deeds, there is a limit to what God can ask of us. That portion of God's grace that we earn is ours to keep. But if we are saved by God's grace, God's grace alone, without respect to ourselves and at infinite cost to him, there is no limit to what he can ask of us. When we give ourselves first to the Lord, we understand this. Now, I want to say, if you're a non-Christian with us this morning, I, I do not want you to hear me asking for your money. Please don't hear that. All we want for you is to believe. We want for you to see This Jesus, this Lord, who left the riches of heaven to suffer and die in order to make you truly rich. We want you to find that compelling. Whereas whereas smog rests upon a bed of gold, Christians rest upon a bed of God's grace. God's free and unmerited favor. And so so non-Christian, we are so glad you're here. We hope, we truly hope you find it compelling that that you would come join us, that you would would surrender your life to, to this king, the king who promises to exalt you in glory. Come rest, come rest, come rest in grace with us. Come lay on this bed of grace with us. Okay, I have a quick story. It's about another dragon. Uh, but this time from C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's a story about how God can turn a dragon into his child. Eustace was a boy in possession of a large fortune, and like smog, he slept with his treasure. He slept on his fortune, and when he woke up, he was a dragon. His greed and selfishness had transformed him completely. He was cut off from the rest of humanity. He was a dragon. He was alone. He was in despair. And even so, Aslan arrives. The wise, compassionate, and mysterious king. He leads Eustace to the top of a mountain, a garden at the top of the mountain, the well at the center of the garden. The water in that well had the power to heal Eustace, and so he begins to peel off his skin. But he does so in vain. Every rough and scaly layer was followed by another layer, deeper than before. He could not, he could not clean himself. He could not cleanse himself. He could not shed his own skin. And so the king speaks, and he says, You will have to let me undress you. Eustace surrenders. He lays on his back, completely passive, as the king peels back 
his scales. It was terribly painful, he said, and yet pleasurable at the same time. Then the king picks him up and throws him in the water. And he begins to splash and play about. He is a boy again. And after a while, the king took him out of the water and dressed him in new clothes. Brothers and sisters, our rough, impenetrable flesh is the flesh that Jesus put on flesh to peel away. We were dragons, but he can and he has made us children. The king can lead us to a garden at the top of a mountain, to a well of living water. He can make us rich. He can, he can give us new clothes. He wants to make us rich. But we can't keep sleeping on our treasure. This is how the gospel informs our finances. Jesus was rich in heaven, but he, he became poor on earth to make us rich in heaven. So now that our treasure is secure in heaven, we can become poor on earth to make others rich in heaven. You see, that's, that's how the gospel informs our finances. So we've addressed the first potential reason why we don't give like the Macedonians. Um, the next few will we'll move a little bit more quickly. Uh, reason number two, we are consumeristic with money, greedy for money, anxious about money, or all of the above. So no matter your particular struggle there, the answer is twofold. Number one, we need to see our money as the currency of grace. We talked about that earlier. And number two, we need to remember that the riches we've been given in Christ. We, we need to remember the riches we've been given in Christ. Everything we could ever want, all the comfort, all the power, all the security we could ever need is found in Jesus. Money is not significance. Money is not security. It's just a tool. It's a currency given by God for the distribution of grace. What purpose will your money serve in 10,000 years? Think about that. What purpose will your money serve in 10,000 years? Because worldly treasure looks like life. But ultimately, we either kill ourselves climbing that mountain or we reach the peak alone and unsatisfied. And on the other hand, heavenly treasure looks like death. Let's be honest. Heavenly treasure looks like death. But to those faith-filled men and women who plunge themselves into that abyss, God grants fruitfulness, joy, resurrection life, and 100-fold the riches. So how can we treat our consumerism, greed, and anxiety? How do we push back on a culture of greed? By giving generously. By giving away more than we're comfortable giving. Generosity is our, our strongest defense and the most dangerous weapon against greed. And listen, I personally, I, I don't 
I don't try to give generously because I am generous. I try to give generously because I want to be generous. I try to give generously because, honestly, I know I'm greedy. And because I, I truly believe there is an inverse correlation between the amount of money I'm sleeping on and the amount of spiritual power I'm walking in. Potential reason number three, we don't trust the church. Listen, I get it. Uh, you, you may have been burned by the church in the past, or maybe uh, the charlatans you see on TV are ruining it for everybody. There are plenty of reasons not to give to the church. But again, Christians give themselves first to the Lord. We should not assume, as, as we read 2 Corinthians 8, don't assume that the, the Christians in Jerusalem stewarded the money they were given by the Macedonians perfectly. At Sojourn, we have measures to help with stewardship. We're, we're 100% transparent, but we will never be perfect. You are not perfect with your finances. We are not perfect with our finances. We will never steward our money perfectly. But, but you can give, trusting that the same God who gives you grace to be generous can give us grace to be faithful. We will do our best to give you confidence in, in, in sojourn stewardship. But keep in mind, Jesus doesn't give us annual reports or ROI calcula calculations or baptism growth charts. He does not give us those things. He simply says, trust me and follow me even when you can't see the short-term outcome because the long-term outcome you know is, is glorious. It's assured. So trust my promises. Potential reason number four. We don't know how to budget or at least to budget for generosity. And, and this potential reason has, has little to do with um, whether or not our hearts are generous. Sometimes we just need help. And some people are better with money than others, and that's another reason God has given us one another. Our financial stewardship team wants to help you. There are people in your parish who would probably love to help you. And I don't necessarily say that so that you'll give to sojourn, give more or start giving. I, I don't say that. I want you to know the true the true wealth of being generous as Christ is generous. To know the true joy of becoming poor so that someone else might become rich. And hear me, this will take time, and, and that's okay. God's grace is for his children, and his children will want to be generous like he is generous. But he's not He's not tapping his foot, wondering when we're going to figure all of this out. He's patiently and, in, and graciously inviting you and me into a life of generosity. And there is grace for us in the meantime. Reason number five. We don't have the same sort of joy the Macedonians had. Take one last look at verse two. Paul says of the Macedonians their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty 
have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. In Macedonia, joy plus poverty equaled generosity. In Macedonia, joy plus poverty equaled generosity. So, in Houston, what should joy plus wealth equal? We live in a wealthy neighborhood, in a wealthy city, in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. So in Houston, and and everywhere really, um, if we fail to overflow in a wealth of generosity, it's not because we lack wealth, it's because we lack joy. And we find this joy as we dwell on verse 9 as we believe the gospel fully, as we abide in the person and work of Jesus Christ who promises us full joy. God's grace is the wellspring of our joy and our joy is the wellspring of our generosity. So in in conclusion, the incarnation of Jesus Christ frees us to grow in the grace of generosity. Jesus went, from, Jesus went from riches to rags so that we could go from rags to riches. We can now give as Christ gave, joyfully and freely. Before Jesus, God's people gave out of obedience. But now, a world of generosity has opened up to us in Christ. We can grow in the grace of generosity. And and I don't know necessarily what this looks like for you. Everyone is different. Everyone is in a different situation. But I do challenge you, in light of verse 9, to do one thing this week. Do one thing this week that stretches you a bit more in terms of generosity. Maybe you open your home to your neighbors. Maybe you ask for help and accountability in drafting your budget. Maybe you begin giving to the local church. Maybe you increase that gift. Maybe you create a weekly donation to the Sojourn Houston Benevolence Fund. Maybe you volunteer one night a month at the food bank. Maybe you buy Subway gift cards for the hungry. Maybe you support Justin and Carly, one of our other church planting residents, Carlos or Paul. Maybe you step in to meet the needs of a parish member. Maybe you increase your food budget so that you can bless others with meals. Maybe you share your rainy day fund with somebody else. This is how we become more generous, by acting generously. Every grace needs to be exercised in order to grow. Exercising generosity then, even when it doesn't feel good, even when it's uncomfortable, will over time make us more generous. And if you're looking for the power to do that, it is right there in verse 9. Let me say one more thing, one last thing. Some of us may really be struggling financially. Some of us may feel more like poor Macedonians than rich Corinthians. 
And honestly, Paul's letters to the Macedonians were very different than his letters to the Corinthians. Throughout history, the majority of God's people have been poor and afflicted. And verse 9, which speaks of the poverty of Christ, has been, has been a source of great comfort and confidence. And if that's you, keep working hard. But rest easy knowing that you've already been made rich and that your brothers and sisters have been given to you by God to assist in your earthly provision. I truly believe this is why God allows income inequality. Some of the people sitting in this room have been called by God, commanded by God, to help, to joyfully care for others. An earthly need, er, earthly need, said one theologian, is an occasion for heavenly help. So let's grow in the grace of generosity together as a gospel family. Let's grow in the grace of generosity. Biblical generosity is God's grace to us, overflowing in us, extending God's grace to others. From start to finish, this is the grace of God working in us and through us. He is patient and he will do it. Let's pray.